Hey everyone, it's your host, Abel here with the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast once again. And in today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Eric Helms, one of my top three favorite people in the fitness industry. And this time you will learn about how you can apply some of the strategies and mental tools that a competitive bodybuilder uses to get down to insane levels of leanness to your own personal body composition goals. So if you are about to do a mini cut or a summer shred, or hey, if you're listening to this later, even a winter shred, right? You are going to enjoy this episode. And if you're new to this podcast, this is the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast, which you can find on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on Spotify. And you're welcome to subscribe to. And it is hosted by a guy, well, me, who doesn't have the best genetics for getting huge and muscular, but definitely has the passion for it. And as such, a lot of smart people are being interviewed here about this topic and sometimes about other aspects of personal development too. And I'm also documenting my own journey on this podcast on how I'm trying to get more jacked, more lean or leaner, right? And how I'm applying personal development to my own life. So if that's up your alley, consider following along and subscribing to be up to date on future episodes. And with that, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm once again talking with the scientist, the brain and the voice, Dr. Eric Helms. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I think that's the first time I've been called The Voice. I like that. I hope I'm not expected to sing. I'm doing really well. Yeah, I, I know that you're a bit of a dancer besides being a, a scientist and a writer and a coach and all of those things. But do you sing at all? No, that, 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 is, that is one weird skill that, that, that people wouldn't expect that I don't have. I'm sure some of the other ones they wouldn't expect either. But no, I can't sing. Yeah, I, I think you would be great, actually. Just going from your speaking voice, um, do you know who is Josh Groban? When I am down and oh, my soul so weary. The name sounds familiar, but I, I, I couldn't identify who that, who that would be just off the top of my head. You know the song, You Raise Me Up? Uh, maybe. I'm not great with song titles. If I heard it, I'd know if I recognized it. When troubles come and my Anyway, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know which song that is, and I think you would sound something like that if you sang. So, um, yeah. So you heard it here, folks. I am no longer going to be creating content, writing, appearing on podcasts. I'm going to pursue a solo vocal career because of that a potential compliment that I was given. So thank you for, for starting me on this new journey. Uh, my pleasure. If anything, I can provide that much for to the world. So I'm glad <laughs> that I potentially had an impact today. Absolutely. But yeah, um, primarily what we are here for today is to talk about your recent contest prep process, which I know you are still going through. Uh, is that correct? You're still dieting or are you now done with the, that part of the process and now you're uh, finishing up your shows and just maintaining no, I've got a little, a little, a little further to go. So first, yeah, yes, thank you. I did just compete on sixth of April. Uh, I guess it isn't just anymore. It was actually a month ago now, um, and I have uh, two more shows lined up. Uh, the first weekend in July, I believe, July, I think it's the sixth, and then two weeks later, July twentieth. Both of those are INBF shows in uh, Sacramento, California. So those are the next two on deck, and I am still dieting. Um, I think I came in definitely what would be considered stage ready condition, uh, in April. Um, but I think anyone who, who knows the sport knows that I, I could be leaner and there, there's a few more glute striations to, to nab up. Um, and, uh, and I think 
that 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 that's that's the goal for me is to get to that pristine elite level conditioning, uh, along with kind of the improvements I've made in my physique, and uh, bring that to the stage in July. So the game plan is to diet as I am for most of May, um, and uh, drop another kilo or two. Don't have much further to go to be honest, and then start bringing food up and eating into the show, regaining fullness, uh, bringing back in carbohydrates uh, and calories overall uh, as I eat into the show for July. Right. So I am really glad that I'm able to pick your brain on this. And it's interesting because I am myself not a bodybuilder, never gotten down to the conditioning anywhere close to where you guys get down to. And I don't really create content on that sort of a topic at all. But I think that perhaps there is some wisdom to be taken from the journey of someone who is going through such an extreme process like getting down to stage uh, leanness and would you first of all agree with that do you think that someone who is just a general population person getting lean for the summer or just trying to be healthy maintain a lower body fat percentage than most of the population around them can take some wisdom from the journey of a contest uh, bodybuilder who is going through such an extreme diet i think so uh and not just from the well how do i set my macros and how much weight should i lose per week or the x's and o's but uh, i think there's, there's a lot to be taken from um how bodybuilders uh if they're doing it right in my opinion and if they don't have like you know crazy outlier low body fat genetics uh how we don't stay shredded and how um you know even even those who are are doing a pretty good job in the off season staying reasonably lean understand that the place to to be healthy perform build muscle look good and be functional Uh, and I mean that in kind of a broad, broad number of ways, like mentally, physically, emotionally, et cetera, is not when you're looking as lean as many people try to get. Um, I think with, with Instagram and I, and not that this is anything new, it's just coming at us faster, more frequently and, and, uh, and more easily at our fingertips. It's the same thing we had with, you know, fitness models. You know, we look at a, a magazine called men's health, uh, and, but the person on the cover might be so lean that they've actually dieted to get there, uh, and have to you know, maintain a restricted diet to do that, or sometimes are using anabolic steroids or things like that. And there's a certain level of mismatch between the messaging of what is health uh, and then what it, what is being visually displayed. So I think understanding that bodybuilding is an extreme sport and that you have to diet to get there and that competitors don't expect to stay in that condition. Uh, I think that's, that's where some wisdom lies. And then kind of teasing out what we have to do to Uh, integrate that whole process with our lives and still maintain balance and understand how to make the transitions in and out of prep and, and kind of what the lifestyle aspect of being a bodybuilder is, is really where the gold is for the general population. Right. Yes. Uh, I, that was uh, along the lines of what I was thinking. And so what I was hoping to do here is to start out with the technicalities, you know, things like body fat percentages and macros and training and how those things went for you. And that's the thing that will get most people excited, I guess. And then later transition into some of the mindset stuff and some of the more philosophical stuff behind it all, which will only get the weird people like me excited. And then uh, hopefully the mesh of the two will get something cool for people. So, Absolutely. Um, so we'll start with the things people don't need to know, and then we'll finish with the things they really should pay attention to, but that they probably won't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so first, let's start out with where did you start at? So before you embarked on the contest diet itself, kind of what were your stats and um, kind of what kind of a state were you in before starting out? 
For sure. I think we could, we could go back a couple of years here, or we could even just go to the start of the season. Um, and I'll really quickly kind of dial the clock back to where, uh, in my brain, I was going to get back on stage as a bodybuilder, something I'd always planned to do, but um, that I haven't done competitively since 2011. So my first season was 07, competed in 09, then I competed in 2011. And then I moved to New Zealand in 2012 to do my second master's and my PhD. Uh, and I had decided, look, I'm not going to compete in bodybuilding during this period. Uh, I don't want to try to balance those two things. I did a bodybuilding season in 2011 during my first master's, and you end up having to sacrifice just a little bit of both those processes. And I wasn't willing to do that um, this time. So I said, hey, the stage is always going to be there. I'm a bodybuilder at heart, and I know I'm coming back to it. And it just, and, that, and that's what this was. So right around the uh, what I would describe as the point in my PhD where I could actually see there was a light at the end of the tunnel um, and I had finished my data collection um, and, you know, Hurricane Matthew hadn't ruined my my final study that I did with Dr. Zerdos in Florida. And I knew that I was going to finish uh, and that I had a solid, uh, you know, thesis and that the defense would go well. So sometime in late 2016, I was like, all right, let's start shifting gears. Uh, and that's when I started training for bodybuilding and I started intentionally putting on uh, on weight. Um, and I remember I did a meet, the last meet I did was in 2016, a powerlifting meet. And I actually had to cut, um, five, five kilos, five, five and change kilos to make the 93 kg uh, weight class, uh, which normally is kind of right around where I hover between 90 and 93. And I don't have to do anything to make weight. Um, and I hit a peak off season weight, uh, in, I want to say 2017 of hundred kilos. And I'd also hit some peaks with my strength, um, I can't give you squat and deadlift numbers because I also had hip surgery in 2017, um, but I only actually ended up having to be completely out of the gym for one week for that, even though I did have bilateral FAI surgery. Um, but I had a top sports uh, surgeon here, one of the best in the world for FAI, and you know I was able to speak the language with him of what I could do and what we were trying to avoid. A lot of it was axial loading, so I was doing you know leg extension, leg curl, seated calf raise for uh, you know a week after surgery, and um, then you know, hip thrusts as I could. And then eventually, you know, doing, doing squats and deadlifts again. So I didn't really lose much time there and I kept training my upper body, which was great. So anyway, I hit a, uh, a peak bench of 165 kilos touch and go, uh, which was a lifetime PB for me in 2018. Uh, and then I also hit front squat PRs around like 170 kilos, um, a high bar back squat of 200 kilos, which is quite good for me. Um, and, uh, and I think, hitting RDL numbers of maybe 160 for five. So I was at the strongest I'd been on the lifts that I was doing, even though I don't have the, the powerlifting numbers to compare. Um, looked the best I ever had. It was the first time that I had been 100 kilos. So I've been there before, but it wasn't pretty, uh, where I didn't necessarily look um, like like lean or anything, but I, I looked muscular and I looked good in a shirt and I was getting compliments. And I think uh, it was the first time I, it was appropriate for me to be that heavy. That is, it's like a peak off-season highest body weight. Um, and then I knew that I was still going to have to get damn near quite similar down to my previous stage conditions if I wanted to both improve my conditioning and come in at my best. And I didn't want to start my prep, um, you know, almost 20 kilos over, over stage weight, which is where I was kind of estimating things were. So in 2018, uh, the first elements of the, the the prep began. I did a mini cut in April and dropped down to around 94, 95. And then I did another one in uh, September, October. And I dropped down to around 88, 89. 
And then after both of those times, I went back to maintenance and just uh, ate pretty much you know, ad libitum based on kind of the habits and the behavior I developed. Um, and, uh, and I started prep, I think at 89 and a half was my first official weigh-in on December 18th. Uh, and now the lowest weigh-in I've had is, is around 81.5 or kind of mid eighty ones. Um, and yeah, so I had 15 weeks to my first show, but I started pretty damn lean. If you saw pictures of me at 89, I looked, I'd say probably a legitimate, maybe uh, 10 to 12% body fat. Right. Um, actually, I, I just want to want to note this. I didn't plan plan to do it, but you know, I, I'm sure you know. Like uh, some people like to point at you here and there as like the almost like the poster boy of natural bodybuilders with not so great genetics. Uh, even Jason Blaha did a couple of videos on you, which is a big honor, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> but, <laughs> but man, like you're you're a big freaking dude, actually. Like though, like you're a large. Uh, bodybuilder like um, for your six foot right like that's that those are pretty impressive stats like um, how, how would you say you score in terms of genetics for for putting a muscle mass like that doesn't sound poor at all like I would say that sounds above average actually yeah I mean I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've coached probably I think I, I did some math one time around 300 plus uh, competitors to the stage all all of them you know natural bodybuilders and um I've just been a fan of the sport as well. I think I attended my first natural bodybuilding show uh, to observe in 2006 or might have been late 2005. I can't quite remember. Um, and I would say that there, there's two different ways to compare this. You can compare me to the field of competitive natural, competing natural bodybuilders. Uh, you can compare me to the pros um, or you can compare me to the general population. And, you know, we, we all like to, to mind F ourselves. So I've compared myself to these people at different times throughout my career and always trying to remind myself to focus on, you know, staying in my own lane and progressing me and, and uh, enjoying the journey and the process. But um, I remember being very confident when I first started lifting because I put on about 20, 25 pounds of muscle in six months without any visible change in my, uh, like my body fat percentage. And then I had, of course, the big the big stall where I was struggling to make any more progress at that same rate. Um, so I initially thought I had pretty good genetics. In my first two years, um, I benched 315 um, and then deadlifted 495. And I don't know if I was hitting depth, but as close to it, I squatted 405. And that was right around the two-year mark. Um, and I was like, you know, strongest guy in the gym kind of thing. So I thought I, I, I was... So I think compared to the general population, I have I have definitely above average genetics for, for putting on muscle. Um, there might be some structural things that that aren't great for competitive bodybuilding as being, you know, six foot and having relatively narrow clavicles and uh, not, a, not a huge rib cage, for example, like my side shots are my best. Um, compared to competitive natural bodybuilders overall, uh, if you look at comparing me to amateurs, I'm still probably a bit above average. Um, and a, a large part of that, I don't think is necessarily genetics, but that I've been lifting for 15 years and the average amateur is probably half that, you know, I'm 36 now. Um, so, and then if you compare me in the pro ranks, I would say I'm probably, um, and I did actually get my, uh, my pro status in one organization in 2011, although currently I'm trying to get, uh, my, my WNBF pro card, which arguably was the hardest to get. And, um, I think currently is the most stringently drug tested and uh, they do just a really good job of providing a great platform for natural athletes to compete. So um, among competitive WNBF 
oh, sorry, pro WBF competitors who are, are competing, not just ones who got their pro card and bowed out, which many do just because they know they won't be competitive at that level or it takes a long time or that was kind of their goal. I would say I'm probably in the bottom third at the moment um, in, in the pro ranks. And in terms of being big, that, that's, that's great that I've created that illusion, but 180 pounds on stage at six foot um, is definitely uh, not that big you know, when it comes to what other natural athletes have achieved. Um, I mean, and, and some people will just be like, oh, how do you know they're really natural? Well, we, we can just go back to like the 1890s if you want. Um, and some of the people who were, who were legitimately shredded 5'9", 175 pounds, like with striated glutes. So that's, you know, basically only a pound or two different from where I might need to get from my lowest weigh-in for when I do actually get that kind of you know, walnut butt style striations and, and I'm, you know, three inches taller. So, uh, there, there are six footers in the, the natural game whose stage weight is 200 pounds, um, who are 20 pounds bigger than me. And a lot of that just comes down to bone structure. Like if, uh, I think I can appear decently big, especially in, in shots where I, I can hide some of my, my defects, uh, because I have smaller joints. So it makes my, my measurements deceptively bigger than they are. Like I have really small wrists. My, if I was to grab my middle finger and my thumb around my wrist, I can completely cover up one of my nails when I do that. So I, I don't have a huge bone structure. Um, and, uh, so that, that, that can be good and bad. It limits your muscle growth, but at the same time, the muscles you do have look a little bigger relative to your joints. So Right. Um, and speaking of bigness, uh, what would you say, uh, this is another question that the listeners are going to love, uh, when you were in the off season at around 100 kilos, like what would you say, but if a percentage wise, where, where were you at roughly? I was probably approaching 20% if I had to guess, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then um, if you look at where you ended up now, I mean, you mentioned that you still need to get a little bit leaner, but I'm assuming that you are not less lean than in your previous seasons. Like, what would you say, how much stage weight would you say you added on top of your frame compared to your last uh, contest, uh, like eight years ago, I believe? Mm, yeah. So I, so the lowest, I was weighing in right around probably 83, 84 kilos on stage, if I had to guess, with a meal in me and, and after the, uh, the relatively mild carb up I do. Um, so that, and, and I'd say the condition was about the same as 2011. Um, I was actually, actually a little leaner in the end of 2009, but I was, um, man, I, was, I had a very stressful contest prep. I was having like edema and, and water retention issues. I think that was largely just due to that being an extremely stressful prep emotionally, mentally. I lost my father that year, um, got injured, and uh, it was also nine months of dieting, and I didn't really know what I needed to do to get shredded. I just knew that I was gonna work harder. I was doing way overdoing cardio. Um, yeah, that's why I got injured. And uh, so anyway, the, the stage, the, the, the body weight there was fluctuating so much, it's hard to know really what my um, non-ankle edema <laughs> body weight would have been. Um, but in uh, 2011, I was on stage in the mid-170s, at about the same condition I was on stage um, this year, um, at, at, at probably you know the mid 180s. So I think 
and some of that's just carb up differences. I, I, I spilled over in my shows, so I think I was over carbed there. So I'd say maybe like seven, seven or eight pounds of stage weight, maybe like a pound a year <laughs> since 2011. So, right. Uh, yeah. Which is still very significant considering that you were not a newbie, not even necessarily an intermediate at that point. So, yeah. And I, I do think I, w I had a little more upper body mass in 2009. In 2011, I had been, um, kind of gravitating more towards lower volume strength training and powerlifting as a as my primary style of training or power building and I didn't yet realize at that point that I responded much better to higher volumes on my upper body at least so I was I do think I actually had a little more muscle in 09 so like from my previous peak to now I would guess probably about five pounds of lean body mass if I really had to to nail down a number um, you know from 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 my best and uh, I think a part of that as well, it's not necessarily that I gained five pounds, it's that I've been able to maintain the vast majority of it as, I, as I've dieted down as well. So how much peak off-season to peak off-season, I do think I put on some muscle mass. We're talking, you know, somewhere in the realm of four to six pounds if I had to really nail it down. And then better retention during prep, uh, understanding my body and, and, and what's the way to train to, to hit kind of the highest level of muscle mass I can attain at this stage of my journey, et cetera. That that's probably what all goes into that calculus, right? So uh, so let's talk a bit about the the process of of your diet. So um, I've seen you putting out some numbers in some Instagram posts and and whatnot about what your rough numbers were in terms of intake. But I also heard you mention that you were not tracking uh, except for a few days when you just kind of rechecked where your numbers were. So what was your dietary approach and like what kind of calorie deficit and rate of weight loss were you targeting? Yeah, I think there's there's a big difference between not tracking and not knowing what my intake is. So the whole time I've known what my intake is because I can't not know from all the years of tracking. Um, but did I, do I did I actually feel the need to put it on the scale and bust out a tracking app? No, I didn't do that until about six weeks out. So that means for the first nine weeks, I wasn't actually, uh, I hadn't opened my fitness pal or, or fit genie actually is what I use. Uh, and I had, I wasn't using my food scale unless there was something where, um, a small change could make a large difference in calories. Uh, or I just, it was a food I wasn't aware of like, Oh, what is this portion size? I'm curious. So that was more of a portion control thing than tracking, but it was pretty rare that I busted out the scale. Um, so I was, uh, to some degree intuitively eating, uh, and, and I knew around what I was intaking in the off season, what my habitual diet looked like. Uh, and it, the structure was quite similar and it was just more of, you know, swapping foods out, increasing and decreasing portion sizes. Uh, but I, I, I live a pretty, uh, habituated nutrition lifestyle in the off season. And, and so it was very easy to transition to prep. So anyway, um, I can tell you the actual numbers because I know what I was taking in, even though there might have been some variation based on what I thought the appropriate level of hunger, you know, lethargy, uh, energy levels and, and, and irritability should have been at different stages of prep based on experience. And I was eating around five days at about 1800 calories and around two days between uh, maybe 2200 to 2500 calories um, uh, at the start. And that served me well and I was losing pretty consistently for about, a, I'd say a month. Um, and then I did a diet break where I had all my days around 22 to 2,500 for a week. Uh, and then after the diet break, I came back and it started, I was effectively losing on 1,800 again after the diet break. And then I pretty quickly had to drop down to 16 to 1,700. Um, and right around six weeks out, that's when I decided I should start checking in with Alberto Nunez. 
my colleague and, and often my, uh, my, my wingman slash coach, uh, at least my primary one, I get input from the whole 3DMJ team, but he has the most experience with, you know, my body and, and having seen me prep in 07 and 09 before 3DMJ was even formed. Um, so, so he's kind of my go-to. Uh, so I started checking in with him around six weeks and uh, getting his, his input. And he thought my refeed should be a little higher, that I was, I was flat even after my two-day refeeds. And he changed me over to starting to have a 4-3 schedule. So four lows, three highs. Um, and eventually, to get down to the stage, stage leanness where I was, uh, my calories got as low as 1,400 calories on my four low days with three high days at 2,700. And I think it's easy to focus on the low days there. But the average for the week is still right around 10k cows per pound when you do that, um, which is not insane. And this is also with very little cardio. I think I've, I did uh, nine cardio sessions in total before I got on stage. Um, and it was mostly just to keep my, my non-exercise activity up. And uh, I knew if I had a really, really lethargic day because I'm a desk jockey, which is probably why my calories are so low, I should get in some cardio on my off days. And it was nothing. It was, it was like 30 minutes of lists each time. Um, so yeah, that sounds crazy low for a six footer, 1400 calories, but 2,700, three days in a row. Uh, when you look at the average, I've, I've found through trial and error that I respond quite well to refeeds, um, that my, my neat seems to bounce back. I feel human again. Um, it maintains my training performance. Uh, it makes weight loss much more predictable. I think I, I dump water and, and I'm able to, to have more regular, uh, bowel movements after having the refeeds than if I just have kind of even moderately high low days throughout. So the whole process seems to be a lot more smoother when I have those extended refeeds each week. Um, and there was a point, like the hardest dig I had to make sure that I got on stage in condition in April uh, was that we shifted to a, a non-determined number of low days. So me running, you know, multiple days at 1,400 calories. Uh, and then once we had seen some visual progress, um, then we triggered those three low days. So the, the, the hardest stint I had is I did four days at 1400, uh, one day at 1900, which I did just cause I had a full day of meetings and I knew that I would be worthless if <laughs> on, on my fifth low day at 1400 and, and my students would be like, why are you my supervisor? Uh, and then I had did another three days at, at 1400 after that before having three days at 2700. That was the longest stint I had, I had almost I had one that was almost that long again. And then we were, uh, two weeks out and we trialed my, my peak week, which still was, was a net deficit and then ran it again into Hawaii. So that was kind of the overall process to get me to continually drop uh, body fat and get tighter, um, visually and, and see the scale go all the way from 89 and a half down to about 81 and a half. Right. Um, as a, an interesting sort of side note, we, talked about this before. I remember asking you about this kind of tangentially before when I interviewed you, but what do you think besides just being having a sedentary job and things like that? Uh, what do you think are the main things that explain the differences between you with these low numbers and someone like Alberto Nunez who have like enormously higher numbers at a lower body weight and just overall a smaller um, size in general? Is it down to neat levels, subconscious movement, or what do you think this comes down to? Well, first, I think it's important just to frame that Alberto is, is probably a couple standard deviations over the norm. And I'm maybe still within one standard deviation below the norm. So we're comparing like an average low uh, energy expenditure to someone who is 
um, quite quite abnormal. <laughs> um, and and of course that's that's people are out there. You know, there, there's there's lots of outliers. I've had people on all kinds of numbers and people who diet on 600 grams of carbs, and of course they stand out because they're insane. Definitely not the norm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, neat. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So, and a lot of that is stuff that we don't have conscious control over. Um, so postural activity, uh, fidgeting, um, just subconscious movement, uh, and then how much of that adapts in response to uh, dieting and being in an energy deficit. Um, and I don't. Th- I think he's quite robust to 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 having low energy availability. Um, if you looked at pictures of him when he was 17, you could still see those classic veins even before he started lifting, just running track. You know, he was running around probably, you know, five pounds over stage weight, not with any muscle or anything yet, really. Um, but you know, his, his natural inclination, if he was just to kind of eat and, and let go of some of his behaviors and just kind of be, uh, the person he's always been, um, is that he would, uh, probably hang out at maybe eight per, a legit eight or 9% body fat. Um, and so, so that means that, uh, it's a while before he'll start taking a quote unquote hit to the same degree as someone else when they start dieting. Um, and he's not going to take as large of a hit when he does. Um, and he's also just always been a pretty physically active person. Like he loved living in San Francisco because of the, the great walks and hikes, same thing in Colorado. Um, you know, he, he used to have a job where he was, uh, after school care provider in the, the Oakland public school district and, um, or the Bay Area Public School District and, you know, running around with, with, with kids. Um, if you watch him train, uh, not only does he seem to respond well to high volume, but he gravitates towards it, never really stops moving, you know, move from machine to machine and, you know, still follows the general principles of ensuring rest times are appropriate. But he's an active dude and um, it's kind of the way his, his body and psyche work. So, um, yeah, that's why he comes in even at his lowest lows and digging with uh, 300 something carbs, uh, even on the lowest days. Right, right. Um, so speaking of the low calorie days that you had, like 14, 1500 calories, what, what foods were you eating to feel sane during these times? Like, uh, did you modify your food selection from your off season, uh, to those, uh, low calorie times? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my, my, the kind of the structure to my off season, um, was I would wake up and I would have a shake, uh, and I would always put two to three pieces of fruit in it. Um, a handful of about a, about a cup of, of spinach and kale, uh, and blend that up with, with a scoop of whey, um, and, and some water. And that would help me hit my fruit and vegetable targets. because I wasn't that hungry at a hundred kilos, you know, or, or getting up to it. Um, you know, and, uh, and then on top of that, I'd have like a quest bar and then we'd often go out to, you know, brunch sometime around 10 or 11 train after that. And then I'd have a post-workout shake. We'd come home. Um, and probably eat a, a late lunch or another meal and then make dinner at home or go out to eat. And then I'd have some kind of protein-based snack before bed. Um, so that structure changed for prep in that essentially the eating out uh, didn't go away completely, but I made very different decisions. Like I would typically eat the highest calorie meal that contained an adequate amount of protein when I was, in, when I was trying to get up to 100 kilos. And uh, the decision now whenever we eat out, eat out if I do, Uh, is one can I, you know, today, do I have, do I have the room? And fortunately not living in the U S like New Zealand, there's much more reasonable choices, uh, much more simple, uh, you know, meal, meal constituent parts. And the, the average portion sizes are much more reasonable. And especially if you know where to go and, you know, we've been here 
uh, almost seven years now. So we know where to go in Auckland where we live. But anyway, um, I would choose the highest protein, lowest calorie option when I go out to eat. But the behavior is still the same. Like we're making a decision to, to go out to eat, sit down, have a meal together, et cetera, which I think is important. Um, and, and my shake changed a little bit, you know, so it went from being, I might throw in an entire mango and a uh, apple and a banana into the shake at the peak of the off season, uh, to me putting in, uh, you know, f- about 50 calories of frozen berries and a small kiwi fruit. So we're, we're talking about going from, uh, 300 calories of fruit to about a hundred calories of fruit. Um, and, uh, so, so that little things like that, I, I would trim, trim the edges off there. Um, and then, uh, instead of going out to brunch, it would probably just be a quest bar um, before, before training. Uh, and then after training, I would probably make a meal at home versus going out to lunch. Uh, and, and that cuts just a tremendous amount of calories when you're using meals out to, to drive, uh, you know, your, 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 your weight gain. And you can still do that and just make swaps. So for me, it's been uh, this, this process of very subtle behavioral changes, uh, like swapping out different types of fruit and cutting one back, um, but huge changes in terms of total calories. So um, emphasizing higher protein, like if you think about it, like if, if, if I'm in, if I'm, if I'm like say 82 kilos and uh, I'm trying to take in an appropriate amount of protein for a dieting bodybuilder uh, on 1400 calories, essentially each meal is something that's a protein dominant food. And I might have veggies, you know, that that's, that's basically it. So um, a can of tuna, an egg white omelet, um, you know, a, a protein shake, uh, or Greek yogurt is almost all of my meals when I'm on those 1400 calorie days. And there might be one quest bar in there, but that that's pretty much the whole day, you know? So, um, there's not a lot of wiggle room when you're on that low of calories with that high of protein. It's basically constructing meals around protein and anything that's not a protein, uh, based, uh, food is something that's extremely low calorie. So a very low calorie fruit or a, uh, or, or fibrous vegetables. How, how did you deal with uh, hunger during that time? Like, um, I'm only asking this because I know that low calorie days and just uh, eating way below what your body would want to naturally eat to just sort of maintain its homeostasis just seems to impact people to a different degree. Like some people just seem to be more comfortable being a bit hungry. Other people have to be much more creative with the volumetrics of their diet. So how, how do you feel that this impacts you personally? All right, just a 20-second interruption to the podcast. If you're interested in a comprehensive, practical, and actionable, super unique online course that teaches you how you can achieve and maintain your most precious body composition goals, like getting lean, building muscle, and all that good stuff without tracking macros, maybe you'd like my autoregulatory eating course, which you can find at sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash autoregulatory. If you've ever wondered whether you'll have to count calories and track macros for the rest of your life to to get lean, stay lean, and put on muscle? The answer is no, and this resource is, I'm confident in saying, the best out there in teaching you how you can achieve all that fun stuff without being tied to your kitchen scale. So if you're interested in doing that, then the URL is once again, sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash autoregulatory. And with that, enjoy the rest of the show. I think one of the best things to to deal with hunger is uh, one, um, not necessarily trying to fight it per se, but more having an understanding of acceptance that this, this is part of the process. You're not doing anything wrong per se, so long as you do have uh, those aspects of volumetrics, like, you know, a high protein diet with, with 
plenty of, of, of fibrous vegetables and uh, plenty of fruit if that fits into your, uh, you can fit it into your calories, uh, which you should be able to if you know which, which fruits aren't very high in, uh, in energy. Um, you know, and, and that, that, that helps to some degree with mechanical satiety. You can have the actual weight of food be similar, if not higher than the off season, even though the calories are way lower. Um, but I think having a mindset of just understanding it's normal, it's acceptance, we're dieting. Um, and that, uh, your, your, your focus and your experience is where your attention is. So, uh, one thing that's really helpful for me is I'm, I'm a pretty busy guy. Um, my days are full. Uh, not that I don't set aside free time, not that I don't have time to, 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 you know, to socialize and relax and, and, and do what I want at times, but I'm also, I've got things to do and staying busy. Uh, like I said, the attention goes where you put it. Uh, if I'm focused on writing or appearing on a podcast, uh, or, uh, doing something else or mentoring a student, um, that it's, it's difficult to notice that you're, you're that hungry. I might still notice it, but the amount of time and energy I can give to it uh, is proportionate to how much suffering you have. And I've prepped when I had only a part-time job and I was a student and I was just studying on the side. And, and um, man, uh, having, having free time, free thought, and obsessing over bodybuilding is the worst thing for prep. You know, like uh, I, the people who spend their time looking at recipe books, uh, scrolling through food porn on Instagram, reading bodybuilding blogs, uh, and spending all their free time or even taking away from time they should be doing something they need to do and focusing it on prep or on bodybuilding, I think they suffer needlessly and make, makes it a lot harder. I find when my hunger gets the worst is when I've settled down for the night. You know, like my typical routine is uh, sometime around six or seven, uh, I look up and I say, hey, Barbara, are you, are you done studying? And she's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just racking my brain at this point. I'm not doing anything productive. Um, and uh, I go, cool. Cause I, I don't want to work anymore either. Let's cook dinner. Um, so we'll make dinner. And then after I finish dinner, I feel like, you know what? I could have a second dinner, but I can't of course, cause I'm out of calories or all I have left is some Greek yogurt or something like that. And that's typically when, um, like from say when we finish dinner around seven 30 or eight till I go to bed around 10 or 11 PM, that's when I notice it the most. And it's cause I have idle time. We're watching Netflix. Uh, we're hanging out. Um, and, uh, and that's when, you know, basically I've got, you know, three hours a night of being a little hungry and, and distracted by it. Uh, and it does get bad, but you know, that, that's such a, a drop in the bucket when you think about the, the level of, of stress you could be undergoing. Um, that's the hunger side of it. I find the, the harder part is just the lethargy I get from being on very low calories on, on for multiple days uh, and making sure that I've got, you know, caffeine on deck, a little bit of, you know, sodium that I take before training and, uh, enough calories earlier in the day so that I can get through a training session with high performance. Uh, that that's something that I have to be a little more mindful of, and then just staying active so I'm not a total sloth uh, during the day when I'm on low calories. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad you mentioned the acceptance part. And and this is exactly the type of thing I was talking about in the beginning. That even just a regular person going through a mini cut or maybe some summer dieting or whatever can take away some valuable things from the journey of someone like you who is going through a contest prep, because these sorts of things like acceptance are so undervalued these days. I think we talk so much about flexibility. And while I think those are absolutely critical things to talk about, managing things like eating out or making your diet as 
enjoyable and satisfying as it can be, not trying to make it intentionally suck for yourself. These things are important and maybe even fitting in some treats, whatnot. But at the same time, you kind of have to come to terms with the fact that this is a time where you're not going to derive just a tremendous amount of pleasure from the hedonic value of eating and that's sort of just a bit of a stoic mindset you need to get into right well said i think i think stoicism is very it's a big part of it and um you know finding some enjoyment in the process of self-discipline um and 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 also i think structure is just as if not more important than flexibility when you're doing this um and structure doesn't mean uh like regimented well actually it does mean regimented it doesn't mean boring or repetitive uh, foods necessarily, but eating similar things at the same time, having certain rules. Um, you know, going out to brunch on a regular basis at, at 10 a.m. with my wife uh, in the off season was structured. Um, but I think a lot of people get into this this mindset sometimes if they come from kind of the, the really freestyle, if it fits your macros kind of approach, where every day is a unique animal, the times they eat, how much, and and uh, every night they, they look up and figure out how many macros that they have left and they have to concoct some unique meal to hit it because throughout the day they're kind of just freewheeling it. I think that's a really important skill to have to be able to do that. I did that for years. It means that when I travel, when I'm in different countries, um, when I'm in a foreign environment, etc., I can, I can very easily make sure that I'm not going over an allotted energy target um, and I can hit certain macros and I know which foods have what from a wide variety of sources. But... I find that that prep is so much easier um, when you have just a structured way of eating that actually doesn't change from the off-season to the in-season and vice versa. And it really just becomes uh, subtle changes to whether or not you're adding a carb source or a fat source or you switch from low fat to non-fat or vice versa or to full fat on some things. Different cuts of meat, um, you know, different fruits, different vegetables, uh, adding in snacks, like all, all of those behavioral things uh, are so much easier to uh, allow prep to be so much easier when you transition in and transition out um, because you're not having to go from this kind of freestyle, whatever, eating like a teenager to, oh my God, now I have to figure out a way to structure it all. And I find that really, really messes people up after diets are over. And you see this in the general population all the time as they go on a named diet, a quote unquote diet. And it's a huge lifestyle change. And there is no intention to maintain it afterwards, nor, nor should you, right? Um, you know, it, because it's, it's something typically extreme. Uh, and even when done right, there often isn't the attention given to think about, okay, how do I transition back? Um, and the reason I've been able to be leaner and leaner each prep to start is because I've gotten better and better at my off-season habits. So I think there's something to be learned from the way bodybuilders structure their off-season, which allows them... Um, when they're not trying to intentionally put on mass and, and get a little bit heavier with their body fat. Like if I all, all of a sudden decided I'm not competing anymore and I don't have any interest in trying to get another, like, you know, whatever, two kilos I can gain over the next five years uh, of muscle, um, that I, I decided, right, I'm happy with my, my, my level of muscle mass, I'd be able to walk around at, you know, 11% body fat without thinking about it necessarily. And I think that's where most people want to be. Um, so focusing on what I do to get to 4%, man, that, that's, that's very, very irrelevant. But um, figuring out uh, what is it that I've done in my off seasons that's made it easier for me to transition to get to 4% and then go back to, you know, 11% uh, versus 
well, what would happen to me my first season is overeating and getting up to like 25% within two months and uh, being kind of the example of someone who didn't have structure and went into prep and then paid the uh, the piper on the back end. I think that's where uh, the gold is really to take home for, for non-competitors. Right. And if you reflect on this process, how this diet went, and then how the diets previously to that went, uh, obviously there are some differences in the specifics in strategy, like how your diet looked like, your day-to-day nutrition looked like. Maybe you were smarter with things like cardio, training, whatnot. But in terms of the overall experience and just how you felt during the whole process, like what would be some of the biggest differences? Like if you just go back in time to 2011 or 2009, like how was, like how how did the environment inside your head look like on a day-to-day basis during those times as opposed to this year? I would say each prep has gotten incrementally easier. So 07, like I said, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no structure to my eating in the off season. I was just on the seafood diet, try to get huge. Uh, and then prep was a drastic change. I didn't understand volumetrics. It was very bro sciencey, and it was an absolute disaster uh, after the shows were over. Oh um, nine, I was following you know hashtag science, and I was doing if it fits your macros and all this stuff. I still didn't have great structure in the off season because um, I spent most of my off season dieting off the the fat rebound from 07, but I got a little better because I understood macros. But it was very very numbers driven without a whole lot of behavioral structure. Uh, I was better at, at the whole volumetrics thing in 09, but um, some of the strategies weren't in place in 09. And I think, like, like you alluded to, that's not the main focus. So let's just say I didn't know how to diet for me in 09. So I kind of just applied a hammer where I might have needed like a screwdriver. So I had to diet, you know, 39 weeks and do like eight sessions of cardio and get down to very low, low, low calories with, with very few refeed that were quite small to get into good condition. And I lost some muscle mass and had edema and et cetera, but I got there through sheer willpower. And then the rebound wasn't as bad. Um, but it was again, a willpower thing, uh, just can kind of knowing that that could happen and not letting it happen. So, uh, 09 was just about, um, sheer will to prevent the, the, the problems with 07 and, um, not, while understanding better science and application, not understanding how to apply it to me as an individual. Uh, 2011, I had started to establish better behaviors um, and a more structured way of eating. And that's because I'd gotten so busy with uh, coaching competitors, uh, teaching and studying uh, that I had uh, I had to if I wanted to get all my eating in. So things looked a lot more regimented. That made it a lot easier. Uh, and I was starting to figure out what I needed to do for me. Uh, I think the only piece that was missing in 2011 was I didn't understand how to peak uh, for me and I didn't understand uh, the type of training I needed to do to maintain my upper body mass. But 2011 was pretty, uh, was, was substantially easier than 09. Uh, I was doing less hit, but still a lot of cardio. And I think that still created some, some edema and issues with my, my lower body presentation. Um, and then this year was easier than 2011, I would say substantially. Um, and um, I think Many of the things were still in place, but I was a lot more confident. Um, I, I, I could see my physique uh, improving. Um, I haven't lost any strength uh, this prep, which is, which is pretty, pretty insane to me. Um, and I've, I did a lot of things in the off-season, experimenting with different splits. And, and what's the way I could get the same amount of volume in with experiencing subjectively the least amount of, of stress and fatigue? Um, and really kind of taking those, those lessons into prep has been very helpful for me. Um, and I think 
the few places where I look at, wow, the, like some of this is unavoidable is my sleep is still a little disrupted on low days. Um, like I said, I get hungry at night, no way around that. Uh, and I get lethargic after successive low days. Um, but man, I tell you what, one thing that I've noticed that has really shocked me, well, a couple things. One, I haven't lost any strength, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. I've seen it happen with my clients, but I just never thought that could be me. Um, another thing that's really cool is this is the first time I've had extended diet breaks. Uh, and, um, and man, like when I'm two, like my third refeed day or when I've been half a week into a diet break to the full time, I feel surprisingly similar to the off season, even though I've got, you know, like split hamstrings and, and, and striated quads. Like I'm, I'm looking at myself going, man, I'm, I do, I do not look like I'm in the off season, but I feel like it. Uh, and then part of my brain goes, maybe you could stay this lean all the time. And then I have one low day and, and I realize how much of a tightrope I'm walking that, uh, in the off season, if I miss a meal, I don't even notice it. But if I miss a meal, uh, in prep when I'm that lean, uh, I very quickly start to feel crappy again. So like, Oh, maybe not. But it's uh, the, the nonlinear approach to dieting, the changes to my training, uh, the confidence I have and the fact that I have built a physique that I'm, that I'm, that I'm proud of and, and that, that it's going to display well um, has been a big part of, uh, I think, preventing that insecurity. And also, more importantly than all that, I also know why I'm, I'm competing. I'm competing because uh, I, I see bodybuilding as a transformational experience and prep is a way to express myself. It has artistic and creative elements. Um, the, the outcome on stage has mattered less and less and less to me over time and more so being at my best and defining that not just by what I look like, but also was the process, did it affect my students and my wife and my life the least amount? How well did I integrate it? Um, and, and was I able to learn from it and, uh, and kind of take part in that journey in, in a way that was very intentional and present uh, and, and has made my life better um, through kind of that process of applying discipline. Um, you know, the, the word asceticism is something that I, I really relate to. We focus on the aesthetics of bodybuilding a lot, um, but kind of the monk-like existence that bodybuilders live and the process which results in the thing we all focus on is really where I think the hidden gems are and the personal growth can be. Um, and ironically, what is often considered a narcissistic pursuit uh, it is narcissistic in the fact that you have to focus on yourself and be self-disciplined. Uh, but you could make the same argument about a monk, you know. Um, I think that 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 individual journey, it, like there's a lot of time to think when you do competitive bodybuilding. You know, you're in the gym. Uh, you're, you're very aware of your body because it's not happy with you. Uh, if you're doing cardio, you know, you've got time to, to reflect. Um, you know, if your sleep is disturbed, you're getting maybe an hour or two less sleep because you wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, and I, you know, I try to meditate or fall back asleep or, or do some writing or work. So I, I have more time to, to reflect. And I think that that can be a very positive thing if you frame it right. So I think all of that has made this prep a really, truly enjoyable experience um, in, in the way that things that are challenging can, can lead to personal growth. And it's made me find a deeper, more meaningful connection to bodybuilding. Damn, mic drop. Uh, um <laughs> I, I want to reflect on for closing on the things that you said about almost the spiritual elements of a, of a diet. But just before that, just because I know people will lynch me if I don't, uh, you mentioned that you didn't lose any strength and that you needed to modify your training so that it's less taxing for the same um, volume and just the same effectiveness overall. So what 
what would you attribute that lack of strength loss to? And then like, what were some of the major, most uh, major changes that you did to your training? Good question. Yeah, I think this, this is actually really important and kind of interesting because I found it cool. So I experimented for about a year uh, in 2018 playing with different organizations of splits. So I did a successive upper lower split for a while, like upper lower, upper lower, upper lower, and then take off days as needed. Um, with the same volume, I then experimented with uh, four, five, and six day full body days and just doing less volume per session, uh, but equal volume per week. Um, and then I experimented with different exercise organizations and I found that, um, leg days just seemed to be really tremendously draining on me. Um, and, uh, like for example, the prospect of doing a lower body day, like, you know, I've always done it. That's just a thing like leg day. Right. Um, so I expect that I'm used to it. And, um, and man, I did Olympic weightlifting where you know, every day has a little bit of legs. So I got uh, exposure to a lot of ideas through powerlifting, weightlifting, training, bodybuilding, training, uh, being exposed to S and C and studying this forever and being involved in physical culture. So I think that allowed me to open my mind and try different ways of setting up training. And I found the same amount of, uh, of volume for legs done across, you know, say two to three lower body days, um, spread across five full body days is way less taxing. Like the prospect for me of doing squats, then RDLs, um, and then leg extension, leg curl on a, on, on a 1400 calorie day is, is pretty brutal. Um, when that's three to four sets per exercise or three to five sets per exercise. Uh, but when just three sets of squats needed to be done. And I knew I had four other days to distribute my lower body volume. And the next day I could do like leg curls, calf raise. And the day after that I could do leg press. And the day after that I could do RDL leg extension. Um, all of a sudden each session became much less fatiguing. Uh, and so essentially my days now I have five full body days that are dominated by upper body training, which is just fun. Uh, you can feel your pump better. You can see the visual results while you're lean, which is motivating. Um, typically those are exercises people enjoy more. Uh, you know, you're, you're wearing a tank top cause you're prepping and, um, you know, that all, all the, all the things that, that we connect with a kind of a gut level with bodybuilding, uh, in many ways occur during the upper body stuff and, and the hard work we connect with the lower body. So I get a taste of that grind cause I've got to do, you know, I have one day where I squat, uh, one day and that, that, that's, that's become a safety bar squat, which is a change. Um, and I had one day where I was doing front squats, but I changed to a hack squat machine just because it took less mental focus and was less mentally fatiguing. Uh, I got a day where I leg press and then I have a day where I do a leg extension and then I have a day where I do like leg curl calf raise and I have two other days where I calf raise on top of it. So it's the same total volume. I get about, you know, 12 to 15 sets per, per muscle group in my lower body. And I'm closer to, uh, 20 sets in my, my, my upper body. Um, that's just what I found seems to work best for stimulating growth or keeping muscle on me while dieting. Um, but it's distributed differently. Now there are these full body, uh, sessions that are dominated by the upper body. So as far as changes, I did drop volume a little bit, but not much. I kind of trimmed here and there. Um, so I'd say maybe there was a, a 10 to 15% reduction in total number of sets performed from the start of prep to now, um, based on feel and what I could sustain and, and how beat up I felt after my sessions and in my sessions and whether the quality degraded towards the, the latter part of the session. Um, but most of the changes, a were, was the split figuring out that, you know, a five day full body was kind of that sweet spot that gave me some off days and allowed each session to be contained within an hour, hour and a half and not be too brutal. Um, and then some other changes I made were just around which movements really, really taxed me. 
So for example, at the start of prep, I was pulling from the floor and I was doing front squats and I changed that over to RDL and then hack squats eventually uh, with a machine uh, just because I found it was just way less taxing mentally. Um, also do a lot more chest supported rowing because uh, I find if I get my lumbar fatigue during prep, it just seems to take longer to recover. And it's a little harder to hold form on certain things, just being focused in the gym when you're dieted. So I've done a little more machine work. Um, I've also thought about the combinations of reps, RPE, and number of sets. So for example, uh, when I do safety bar squats, um, which, which are my, my, my squat pattern that I do once a week, uh, I could do three sets of 10 at, at a high RPE, but I would much rather take the same load and do say like four sets of six or five by five um, at a slightly lower RPE. And I find that is easier for me to stomach and that it doesn't uh, degrade the quality of the rest of the workout. Even though the volume load is quite similar, the load itself is quite similar. Um, and, and I'm just making sure to get, I'm just distributing the volume in a way that is subjectively easier, even though objectively, uh, like the same total, you know, area under the curve for, for force and time, like my impulse, something my muscles are experiencing is probably quite similar. Um, so I've played with, with that. Some of the compound lower body lifts, I'll opt for more sets at a lower RPE of a moderate rep range uh, versus higher reps at a higher RPE is a more traditional approach to bodybuilding. Um, and then swapping out really difficult compound technical uh, high risk, high reward movements with machine variations. Uh, and then just cutting down on some of the redundant volume. Like I was, uh, I was had a, I had a tricep pushdowns on the same day as doing dips and I just cut the tricep pushdowns out a little deeper into prep just because I found I was, I didn't think I needed it. I already had a, a lot of pressing on each day anyway. Um, that's the kind of thing that I might throw in, throw back in in the off season. So it's been about maintaining the integrity of each, of each workout in terms of still getting total volume in, in, in the ballpark uh, while, while making each experience a little easier. Right. Uh, that was really comprehensive. And thank you very much for that. And um, it's interesting. I, during I finished a muscle gaining phase, not long ago, and just recently did a mini cut. Um, and during the actual gaining phase, I started doing some full body sessions daily, uh, like basically every muscle group every day. And I thought that I would have to change it during the diet because I just found that when I'm leaner, I just don't recover as well. And interestingly, I could maintain the same structure, but uh, what I did have to do is just modify my rep ranges because I just didn't, I was basically just being prudent. I was just afraid that uh, my joints just wouldn't handle the same lows that I did during the gaining period because I just found that when I'm leaner, my joints are just less robust. But it sounds like you didn't really have to do that. Like uh, you could keep lifting similar lows and you didn't have to go uh, higher rep, maybe slowing down the reps and just doing things to uh, spare your joints. You didn't really have to resort to anything like that. Well, I, I think the, the, yeah, that didn't change too much. Like, you know, and this may be a function of age, but I can't, I, ha I have to throw in BFR here and there uh, with my arm work to make sure tendonitis doesn't pop up. Uh, I typically do more like hammer grip style curls or, or easy bar curls than straight bar. That'll, that'll flare things up. Um, and yeah, if it does flare up in prep, then I know it's, it's going to be hanging around for a while. So I, I kind of make sure that doesn't happen on the front end. Um, I'll cycle in BFR for, uh, leg extensions as well. Um, because typically most machines, by the time I get to a load that's appropriate for my quad strength, that's going to give me unnecessary knee pain. So BFR allows me to keep the loads low. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, on certain isolation movements, I'll also use like drop sets or rest pause so that I can uh, keep the, the load relatively low, not do quite as much volume, but get in quote unquote more effective reps. So that's something I'm also doing that I should have mentioned in terms of just like joint integrity. Um, but I do that in the off season as well. It's just not, I'm just not as, uh, I don't do quite as much of it just because I think it's, I'm being a little more preemptive and prudent, like you said as well. Um, and one thing I really want to emphasize when you're doing full body training, it's important to think what follows what. So, uh, so for example, on my fifth day, I do uh, bench, RDL, um, safety bar squat, uh, and, and chins or weighted chins. And I have a, a day off after that. That's one of my, my, my off days because that, that gets me pretty much everywhere. And then um, the day that I do the hack squat and the day that I do the leg press, the day following uh, the quad work is something easy like leg extensions or there's no quad work and it's glute and ham work. You know, it might be I have a glute kickback and a hamstring curl uh, that follows uh, the day I do leg press where I have a pretty low foot position and full range of motion. I actually wear squat shoes when I do it and it's very, very taxing on my quads, for example. So um, I think about the placement of movements relative to what comes the next day. Uh, and I, I think you can still train the same muscle group or uh, get in some, some useful volume if you're attentive. Uh, you know, if you think about axial loading and if you think about uh, whether something is hip or knee dominant, um, then you, you can spread things out in such a way that you can go go pretty hard and, and then keep going. And uh, just remember that, man, like three sets of something, even if you go really, really hard, just is not going to do nearly as much to you the next day as when you previously used the body part splitter and upper lower and you're used to doing, you know, six to, to 12 sets per muscle group, you know, on a given day. Right. No, awesome insights. And yeah, similar, similar experiences. Um, there's definitely a method and a madness to full body training daily. Um, but yeah, I, I became a lot more optimistic about them uh, recently. So Eric, uh, final two questions. I don't want them to take up too much time because I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, I don't know when your next meal is coming up. I don't want, <laughs> don't want to delay that too much, uh, just to be sure. Oh, no worries, man. I'm, I'm happy to spend as much time on this as you'd like, dude. Awesome. So, um, you know, you mentioned the, some of the spiritual aspects of uh, horde diet and how, depending on your outlook, it can actually be a mentally transformative experience in a positive sense. And I'm curious, like, do you think that if you were to transport your current knowledge methods and uh, all, just all the knowledge that you have now and maybe you didn't have eight years ago or, you know, 10, 11 years ago, do you think that you could have the same experience as you had now with the whole process back then with the same knowledge? Or do you think that there needs to be a certain level of wisdom and just a decision almost that this is going to be an enjoyable process and then I'm going to be in control of this from a mental standpoint, uh, if this question makes any sense? It does make sense. And it's a really hard one um, because... I do think that uh, the, our perspective at any given point in our life um, is is an accumulated perspective, uh, and it comes from um, the perspectives you used to have, the person you used to be, uh, the mistakes you've made, the successes you've had, and the trial and error that you've gone through. Um, so you know, in a fantasy land where where I got sucked into a you know a plank space wormhole and 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 appeared in a a very similar alternate reality, uh, but but eight years ago and talking to myself, uh, or let's say even longer, let's say in 2007, you know, uh, so, so 12 years ago, um, I think 
I think I would have gotten some beneficial perspective hearing from my future self, but some of the things I wouldn't be able to relate to, like in 07, I wasn't as connected to, uh, to the process of bodybuilding because I hadn't used it yet to process the, the grief of losing my father because he died in the middle of my 09 prep. Um, you know, and, in 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 2011, if I'd gone back, I wasn't yet reading, uh, about physical culture or history, even though many, like I, 2011 prep was easier and bodybuilding was better. I was still probably a little too scientific and, and not quite as connected to the, um, kind of bodybuilding in my gut, like love for it. And which I reconnected with by reading history and, and, and kind of the, uh, the roots of physical culture and things like that. So I wouldn't have related to that aspect. In fact, I probably would have related that to it more in 07 when I was a bit ignorant to the science, but more connected to kind of the ethos and the, the mindsets and some of the, the cultural aspects of, of how bodybuilders talk and think. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough to say, but I, I do think, um, I do think I could have maybe fast tracked or, or gained some perspective earlier or, um, or maybe uh, listen to the, the advice I was saying and taking it on board in a real sense a little earlier. So, for example, in 07, I, I was just started saying things like, hey, you know, I'm 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 not I, I'm Eric and I have self-worth outside of bodybuilding. I bodybuild, but I'm not just a bodybuilder because uh, I realized that I had more satisfaction from a lower placing when I presented better than just a week prior when I when I placed higher. Um, and I started to say things like, you know, it's it's you versus you. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, we started 3d muscle journey. So it was about, you know, the qualities of dedication, desire, and discipline and journey, but I was still very, very internally focused on getting a pro card, being my best and eventually becoming, you know, like a pro champion. Um, so I think I knew where I wanted my values to be and where I wanted my priorities to be, but they, I hadn't really made all of those shifts internally to have my, uh, emotional attachment match up to my, intellectual thoughts and knowing what was probably holistically better for me, uh, from a wellness perspective. And that's something that took, you know, years for me to integrate. So I do think there's only so much I could have taken for myself, you know, uh, without kind of going through the process. Absolutely. Um, and my final question is, is, um, sort of, I guess it's a question that you had to ask yourself at some point, you know, anytime I'm finishing a cut, and of course, it cannot even be remotely be compared to a contest diet, but still, you know, it's a fat loss phase. And anytime I'm doing something like that, I'm learning a little bit of something. I'm gaining a bit of insight as to how I could do things better when I'm not dieting. And I'm curious if you have learned any sort of insights during your contest diets, which you could implement in your off seasons. And then also, if uh, maybe you change your plans about how you're, I mean, you mentioned that you got enticed by the thought of maybe you could stay at this lean and obviously that's not sustainable, but maybe if you are going to try to stay a bit leaner than you were in previous off seasons, um, because now you can see how you're able to maintain lower body fat percentages. So yeah, what are some of the insights for going forward for you? Yeah, that's a really good question and something I'm, I'm excited about. Uh, I think um, now, granted, I, I still got another like three weeks of, of really hard digging, maybe four before I think I'll be in uh, that truly elite level of conditioning, and then we'll see how I feel eating up into the show. So this is this is me probably not at my <laughs> my lowest low of uh, of experience difficulty this prep speaking. So take that with a grain of salt. You know, tap me on the shoulder again. End of May, we'll see. I'm still singing the same tune, but I think one thing about this prep being subjectively easier and getting further than I ever have with it being less 
uh, invasive, if you will, um, is that I'm quite excited about the transition. Um, because like the harder you crush yourself in prep, um, the more willpower you'll have to, to exert to not rebound really hard uh, into the off season. And then the longer it'll take to recover. Uh, that's something I've seen time and time again, that if someone dieted really hard for eight months, man, it might be four or five months before they're feeling all the way right again. Um, and I'm very encouraged by the fact that, uh, so for example, one of the biggest PRs I think I got during this prep was, so I, I competed April 6th. Uh, and then we went out to eat that night and I ate freely the next day on neither day that I get anywhere close to binging. Um, and then I flew home. Uh, I was in, in New Zealand for 48 hours again, just eating intuitively cause I was on a diet break, nothing even remotely resembling a binge. And then we went to Italy for a week. Uh, and, 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 uh, again, like I came back and I weighed 82.8, which is the same thing I am after two or three high days. Um, and I was in the same condition. I took some pictures in the hotel room that I posted, uh, towards the end of my, my, my diet break. Um, and I, I couldn't believe it. You know, the, there would be two things that would have happened to me behaviorally, um, going to Italy after a show, uh, back in previous seasons. One, I would have to hit numbers, stay on the diet, feel restricted and not, and, and, and be resentful that I was not getting to enjoy Italy, uh, or two, not have numbers and set myself back probably two or three kilos of body fat gain from, from binging a couple times and being resentful that I couldn't control myself. And I ate like a, a, someone at least who knows how to imitate an adult. You know, I was hungry at times, but um, I did a really good job and I didn't feel dieted. And that's when I was thinking, man, like, could I live like this? And I don't think I could or should because I don't think it's like I didn't have much libido at all. I, I was sleeping inconsistently like it was better, definitely. And my sleep was better for like a solid week and a half before I started dieting again. But it, it was like me walking on a tightrope in the off season. I think it's the best way to describe it. So that experience gives me a lot of, uh, of curiosity as to, well, what, what is a, uh, a sustainable uh, body fat percentage because before I got into the whole bodybuilding thing, I walked around relatively lean, just a lean kind of skinny guy. I never thought about it. Um, not like I was shredded. I had no muscle to, to speak of. Um, and then bodybuilding for me coming from a skinny guy background, kind of a hard gainer mentality was eat everything. So my, my food behavior has been so different than its natural, uh, kind of setting point, I guess you will, uh, for, since I was for the last 15 years. Um, so it, I'm very curious now to see uh, what will my off season look like? Where can I perform and make, basically the question is, is where, what's the leanest I can be where I'm not food focused and I'm not obsessed with food. I'm not over, overly enjoying my food all the time and thinking about living meal to meal. And can I make progress in the gym? Because my numbers are going up and I'm not food focused. Whatever body comp that is, the leaner, the better, because it puts me in a better position to be able to gauge progress, uh, enjoy life and sets me up for, for my next season, if and when that comes. Uh, and it gives me more time to put on muscle mass before uh, I get to a point where the body fat gain becomes problematic because then the next diet will be too long or too aggressive. So maybe it is right where I started, right around 88, 89, and that'd be great. I was very, very happy with my physique, and uh, I think that made this prep a lot easier starting, starting at that weight. You know, a 15-week prep is literally half the length of 2011. Um, of getting into the same condition. So that clearly was, it was a good decision. Um, or maybe it's leaner, maybe it's 85, 86 kilos and, and, uh, only, you know, 10 pounds over stage weight, which would be mind blowing to me. I don't think that's where I'll be, but if it is, I'm, I'm not gonna, 
um, not going to fight it. It'll just be kind of neat. Yeah. Um, and just for anybody listening, I mean, go on Eric's Instagram and check out how he looked like at 89 or so kilos. And yeah, I mean, you will be Instagram influencer worthy. I mean, you are already, but not, ju- <laughs> not just with the wisdom, but with the constant physique shots as well. So <laughs> something to look forward to. So basically, what, what the benefit is you'll get less scientific information, less blog articles, less YouTube, less podcast, and more selfies of me just uh, fully embracing the fact that I, I can give you a uh, complex and slowly developing eating disorder on my own. You can watch that unfold on Instagram. So that, that's the good news, folks. Yeah, I can't wait. Like uh, Eric flexing and then some motivational quote, which has nothing to do with the picture. Um, it will be it will be glamorous. Absolutely. <laughs> I cannot wait to be terrible. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Eric, um, I think you dropped uh, a lot of um, great insights as usual. And uh, I think that this will be definitely helpful, not just for people who want to get down to stage leanness, but also for people who need some insights and uh, mental perspectives on dieting if they want to do a mini cut or anything like that. So thank you so much for doing this. And I really appreciate you taking the time. So yeah, just let people know, please, where they can find you and any kind of cool projects that you have coming up. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you giving me the uh, the platform to talk about this. And I hope I hope it is helpful to people. Uh, and if you want to learn uh, more about what I do and, and, the, and the things that, that I put out there, check out uh, 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, and then musclejourney.com. Uh, that's, that's me and the whole team uh, where we basically put out a lot of free content that is aimed at helping the, uh, the drug-free lifting community, whether you're recreational or competitive. You know, our mission statement is to help people uh, make, t- take the lessons they learn in the weight room and getting on stage in the platform and make their lives better for it and allow them to be sustainably performing athletes for a very long career. Um, We have blog posts, podcasts uh, that you can find for free to listen to there, in addition to links to my books, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids. If you want to nerd out, my research review, monthly applications, and strength sport. Um, And if you want daily content from me, definitely check me out on Instagram, at helms3dmj. Uh, And please do, if you're interested in the uh, the kind of the culture, the history, the science uh, of, of the lifting community, uh, make sure to check out Iron Culture Podcast with myself and Omar Isif as well. Uh, and as far as cool projects, um, you know, when we when we go to California uh, to, to compete, I'm probably going to be meeting up with Omar and we're going to do some very cool interviews with, with some folks out there, do some pilgrimage, pilgrimages to, to, to cool spots and, and get some great guests. Um, and as far as cool other cool projects, uh, for those who speak Spanish as a first language, um, we just recently launched the Spanish version of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. Those came out this month, and we're on the horizon. Very soon, I'll be announcing the release of um, the Muscle and Strength Pyramids Novice Bodybuilding Second Edition program. That's the program from the book uh, that you can run through the Gravitas app if you have an iPhone. So that's cool, too. Awesome. Yeah, that's a lot of cool projects. So yeah, uh, guys, uh, definitely check those resources out. And Eric, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Always an honor and a privilege. Thank you, Abel. Alrighty, so I hope you enjoyed this interview with Eric. And if you'd like to hear more stuff like this in the future, then please consider subscribing to the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And if you don't mind giving me a favor, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes to help this podcast grow, be more recognized around the web, and hey, to make it ultimately possible to get on more high-caliber guests so that I can interview them and share those interviews with you. So please, if you're listening to this from iTunes, just smash that five-star rating 
rating there. All right, that's all I had to say for today. I hope you enjoyed it once again and see you around next time.